nearly $300 billion. Finance Minister Mohamed El Jadan said revenues ex estimated to increase 9% with debt deficit falling over 4% of gross domestic product. The level of public debt will rise more than 20%. The Saudi economy grew more than 2% this year, but not enough to put a dent in the jobless rate, which hovers near 13%. The U.N. is expected Wednesday to convene Yemen's warring factions by video link to discuss the redeployment of all forces from the port city of Hodeida, where a U.N.-brokered ceasefire went into effect Tuesday. The Saudi coalition-backed government and Houthi rebels have agreed in Sweden to the truce, a confidence-building measure designed to pave the way toward a political settlement. The Trump administration has given a travel ban waiver to a Yemeni mother to travel to the U.S. to be with her dying two-year-old son, Robert Palardino is a State Department spokesman. These are decided on a case-by-case -case basis, and we are committed to following uh, United States administration law and ensuring the integrity and security of our country's borders, and at the same time, making every effort to facilitate legitimate travel to the United States. Seamus Swilla plans to fly to San Francisco Wednesday. Her son, Abdullah, suffers from a genetic brain disorder. Eleven crew members abducted by pirates off Nigeria's coast in October are said to be safe and will be reunited with their families. Eight of the crewmen are Poles, and the announcement came from the Polish Foreign Ministry. The crew members were kidnapped from the container vessel MV Pomerania Sky. The number of journalists killed this year is 53 so far. The Committee to Protect Journalists said that compares to 47 documented in 2017. The U.S. Central Bank Wednesday will end its final policymaking meeting of the year in Washington and is expected to hold the line on a key interest rate, which has already been raised three times this year. I'm Victor BTV, OA News. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, December 19th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A commission of inquiry in Zimbabwe faults the military and the police for the deaths of six people last August. The use of live ammunition was clearly unjustified and disproportionate. The use of shambles, button sticks, and rifle bats to assault members of the public indiscriminately was also Disproportionate. Vice President Emerson Mnagagwa of Zimbabwe, the main opposition MDC, says it is time to get the military out of Zimbabwe politics. An opposition leader resigns from the government as a teacher strike continues in Guinea-Kunakri. Uganda's president proposes a national dialogue, and the Malawi opposition party chooses the current vice president as its presidential candidate. So Salo Sulima was elected the president, which means he is going to be the top player of the party in the uh, next year's presidential election. Joseph Chidanta Mulonga is the director of publicity of the opposition United Transformation Movement Party of Malawi. And African art restitution gains traction in France. Those stories plus our listener of the day are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Zimbabwe, the Commission of Inquiry set up by the government to look into last August post-election violence released its report late Tuesday. The commission was chaired by former South African President Halima Molanti. Six people were killed when police fired live bullets 
at opposition supporters who were protesting the delay in releasing the results of the July 30th presidential election. In one of the findings, the report said the army and police used unjustified and disproportionate force. The generals who testified before the commission had denied that soldiers were responsible for the deaths of the uh, protesters. Here's President Emerson Unagagwa uh, with some of the findings. Whilst the deployment was lawful, the operational framework in terms of Section 37, Subsection 2 of POSA was not followed in that the deployed troops were not placed under the command of the regulatory authority due to time constraints as acknowledged by the Commissioner General of Police. Whether the degree of force used was proportionate to the ensuing threat to public safety, law and order. Given that property and lives were under threat at various locations, and in light of the inability of the police to displace the protesters, the firing by the army and the police of warning shots in the air in pursuit of their stated mission, which was to clear the CBD of violent protesters, was proportionate. However, the use of live ammunition directed at people, especially when they were fleeing, was clearly unjustified and disproportionate. The use of shambox, button sticks and rifle bats to assault members of the public indiscriminately was also disproportionate. That was President Emerson Mnagagwa of Zimbabwe. He says his government will study the report before deciding what to do. An opposition leader in Zimbabwe says the fundamental problem in the country is the takeover of civilian politics by the military. Welshma Mbe, vice president of the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, says the military has taken over the ruling ZANU-PF and state institutions. He was reacting to the findings of the Commission of Inquiry set up by the Zimbabwe government to look into last August post-election violence. The report said the army and police used unjustified and disproportionate force, resulting in the deaths of six people. Umbe says, although the opposition received the report late Tuesday, nevertheless, it welcomes the findings. He said, what matters now is what action will be taken to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Let me start by saying that we are still studying the report. We only just received copies of the report yesterday afternoon. But we, of course, welcome the finding that the use of live ammunition was unjustified. And that given that uh, the protesters were, in fact, shot from the back by and large, that uh, use of force was disproportionate. We welcome that. It is something that uh, every rational person has always known. In that light, in terms of what is going to be done, the report recommends that the soldiers and police who broke codes of conduct should face internal discipline. Is that fair, or do you think that they should face maybe a court proceeding? Well, given the patently dishonest evidence, which was being proffered by the command element of, in particular, the military to the commission, 
clearly there are no prospects that uh, any internal disciplinary processes, even if they are court-martial proceedings, will in any way be done fairly and properly. The only fairest way would for these individuals both at command level as well as at execution level to actually face the full rest of the law of the normal ordinary criminal court of the country. The report seems to also blame the opposition, saying that opposition leaders incited violence ahead of the deployment of the military and the police. Well, every fair-minded person would, of course, accept that at some point, the demonstrations born out of the plea, the frustrations and the fears that the electoral process was manipulated, degenerated into violence. So I frankly do not believe that it is correct, it is proper, to find that the opposition incited anyone to demonstrate, let alone to commit acts of violence. What would be fair is a conclusion that, yes, those demonstrations turned violent, but the opposition had no role, direct or indirect, in inciting or in any way doing anything at the behest of the opposition to make any demonstration. The fact that uh, even President Emerson Munangagwa read this portion of the report criticizing the police and the army, is this a sign of some openness in Zimbabwe? I think it is important to acknowledge the wrongs that were done by the military in this instance. What now matters is to wait and see what action will be taken to ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. But more importantly, more importantly, over and above what the commission has said, what we have as a fundamental problem in this country is the takeover of civilian politics by the military. So our biggest challenge as a country is how will we ever be able to get the military back in the barracks, not just in the physical sense, but in the political sense. Our military at the moment, with the greatest respect, has taken over the ruling party, has taken over state institutions, and directs the conduct of politics in this country. And that is the biggest challenge, how to take them back to the barracks. Mr. Mumbe, thank you very much for speaking with us on Daybreak Africa. Thank you, sir. Wash is vice president of the opposition movement for democratic change in Zimbabwe. He was speaking with me from the capital, Horare. Ugandan president Yoweri Kaguta Museveni says he is ready to dialogue with opposition political parties in the country. He says national dialogue is paramount for the stability and prosperity of the nation. Justice James Ogula, the retired principal judge of the High Court of Uganda, says dialogue is not an option, but rather a must in order for Uganda as a nation to heal what he called its bad past as well as shape the future. Mugumi Davis Rakaridge reports from Kampala. Speaking Tuesday in Kampala at the launch of the National Dialogue, Mr. Museven said he has, in two quotes, been dying for this dialogue so people from different divide can be able to discuss their views. If you are a sectarian, I'm not with you. Sorry, and I'm here to tell you that I will not be with you. I have never been with you. I will not be with you. 
So it's, this dialogue is good without violating the Constitution. Because we must be very careful about that. We cannot uh, violate the Constitution. This dialogue, we shall see how we move. President Museven came to power more than three decades ago through a coup d'etat. He has, on five occasions, contested and won elections, although the opposition has always claimed election regularities. Mr. Museven said the national dialogue is important for socioeconomic transformation and democracy of the country. The national dialogue will be spearheaded by the Regis Council and Elders Forum. Speaking at the same function, retired Justice James Ogola, chairman of the Elders Forum, outlined some of the issues that he said will be discussed during the national dialogue. Our national diversity, we need a consensus on that. Our national values, land and natural resources, a very fundamental topic for the nation to ponder and agree a consensus. The dialogue will discuss constitutionalism and the rule of law. It will be headed by a committee whose members will be selected from the government, political parties, religious leaders, the civil society, the youth and women. Ogola said the dialogue will help give direction to the future of the nation. We aim high, we aim noble. From the ashes that have characterized our history, this power of Africa aims to rise to glorious heights in the future. From yesterday's nightmare of our bloody past, we aim to awaken to the bell of liberty. Today, we take the arc of yesteryear's history and bend it from the night of nightmare into the bright day of beauty and promise. Uganda's main opposition party, the Forum for Democratic Change, OFDC, has shunned away from attending the proposed dialogue, saying it is meant to promote the current regime. For VOA News, Aya Mugume, Davis Rwakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. Today's Wednesday, December 19th, and you're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington, and please send your comments and opinions to daybreakafrica at voanews.com. Daybreak Africa time is 17 minutes past the hour. Malawi's opposition United Transformation Movement UTM party has officially elected Vice President Solos Chalima as its presidential candidate in next year's general election. His election came after he accused the government of planning to assassinate him before next year's polls. But Minister for Homeland Security Nicholas Dawusi has rejected the claim, saying Chilema is protected by round-the-clock security. Chilema's election pits him against incumbent President Arthur Peter Mutarika, who handpicked Chilema as his running mate in the 2014 elections on the Democratic People's Party DPP ticket. But Chilema fell out with the president after accusing the government of corruption. He then resigned from the ruling DPP to form the UTM party. Joseph Chidante Malunga is director of publicity for the UTM. It is true that we had a convention yesterday and the, all we did was the, to legitimize the uh, positions and uh, also give the UTM the mandate to participate in the uh, next year's presidential elections. And the Dr. Salas Chilima was elected the president, which means he's going to be the top chair of the party. And the several other people were also uh, elected. As you know, that the, this event is very important because uh, that's where you, um, you're given the mandate for the people to lead the party. Joseph, there were initial local media reports that some local representatives, although they were interim, uh, left the party over disputes, some over money. Do you think by this election, all these alleged or reported divisions have been resolved? 
there were no divisions at all. I mean, in the politics, people count on anything, and we just we talk whatever they want in order to punish the image, the image of the other. But there are no divisions whatsoever. What I know is that some people that we, you know, had the internet position decided not to protest. And the reason is they say, okay, uh, we want to give chances to the other people that are new to the system of people's newness. So we cannot do this when you, some of the members are not able, I, I mean, cannot fill up uh, their position. So that's what it is. We need to do this. So uh, the guys that are out there, people that they have friends in politics, can you protest and we stand aside and we work. Um, whenever you need us, you need our advice, we will be available to you. I don't think that would be bad for it to put to our party that means something we can do is to have that sort of during the election, there were some people who were unopposed, and some of your critics are saying that does not show the tenet of internal democracy in the UTM. How do you respond to that? This is the politics. People will look for any liberal that they see in the and the capitalizing that. I mean, being unopposed doesn't mean that they vote democracy. I mean, these positions, they advertise three weeks prior. They were in New York, they were in every major newspaper in this country. They were in the social media, they were in the radio, they were everywhere, really. And people, um, we were that. If you don't open the election, uh, that's when you say, it's not contact. But when you open up and allow people to actually apply, it's people didn't apply. I mean, how are you going to feel someone to say, come on, apply for this position? Is that how it works? That's not how it works. So let me ask you, what do you think are the realistic chances of the UTM's presidential candidate, Salos Chilima, in next year's election? And is there a room for a possible alliance in the run-up to the election? We are open. We can work with anybody with the same ideology as we have. But I think the question is how. The question is how is what sort of everyone else is looking forward to. So if we go into partnership, what kind of partnership is this going to be? How is it going to Joseph Chidante Malunga is the director of publicity for Malawi's opposition United Transformation Movement Party. He spoke with viewers Peter Clotty from the capital, Lilongwe. A strike by public school teachers in Guinea Conakry has been going on now for more than two months. The teachers are demanding an $800 a year salary increase, but the government of President Afra Conde says it will not negotiate with the teachers because their demand is unaffordable. Meanwhile, students have been out of school for more than two months now, and their school year is in jeopardy. An opposition leader who went on a hunger strike to support the teachers has ended his strike with no positive results. Sidi Touré is the leader of the Opposition Union of Republican Forces Party. He joined the government, but then quit. He explains why. We don't have any possibility, you know, to implement what decision we have to help really to go forward and to increase the revenue for uh, people in Guinea. So I, I think that in three years was just enough. I remember when I talked with you, when you decided to accept that position, you had hope that uh, you would contribute to bringing about changes. Are you saying Absolutely. that uh, there's been no possibility of enacting any positive change in Guinea? Absolutely, this is what I'm thinking. And uh, the problem is more important than I think because it's a real problem for leadership. In the meantime, uh, Mr. Toure, there has been a teacher strike for months now in Guinea. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a solution. Was that part of your decision to resign? 
Because, you know, it's one month and a half we have a strike, and I tried to have a discussion with uh, teachers, and I asked to the government to have a discussion, because the more important thing we can have in underdeveloped countries like Guinea is to be sure that our education will go in the good direction. And I have no answer from the government about that. So kids are in the street during one month and a half. I think this is absolutely unacceptable. This is one of the reasons, too. But the government says that the demand of the teachers, the pay raise that the teachers are requesting, is unaffordable. Absolutely, but you go to discuss, and maybe you say, this is what I can do. But uh, saying that we have no discussion with nobody, I think this is not a good responsibility for the government. We have to go to discussion and be sure that we can do something or we cannot do more. We can do, I don't know, 10%, 5%, 1%, I don't know. But uh, this is not the solution we have. So what's next now for you, Mr. Touré? I will try to explain to the people that we need a change of leadership in this country. This is very important. And the next election will be in 2020. And I'm trying to work with my party to go forward. But the next step will be the Congress election. We're preparing that for next year. Sidi Toure is the leader of the Opposition Union of Republican Forces Party. You're speaking with me from the Guinea capital, Conakry. New momentum in France to return artifacts dubiously acquired during the colonial era has sparked growing restitution claims in Africa, with the West African country of Benin expected to be the first beneficiary. Lisa Bryant has more from Paris. In the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, the Quai Branly Museum hosts France's biggest collection of indigenous art from Africa, Oceania, Asia, and the Americas. An estimated 70,000 of its roughly 300,000 artifacts come from Africa. But for how long will Quai Branly be able to keep them? That's a question facing French museums housing African artifacts, some taken by French soldiers and civilians during colonial days. A report released last month argues they should be permanently returned to their places of origin. On est dans un temps qui est beaucoup plus opportun pour que l'on avance sur cette question-là parce que cette question relève aussi d'un impensé. Senegalese economist Finwa Sarr co-authored the report with a French historian. In a recent interview on French radio, Sarr argues that after decades of discussion and dispute, the time for returning African art is ripe. African youth has a right to reconnect with its patrimony, he says, just like young people everywhere else in the world. Le patrimoine africain ne peut pas être uniquement dans des collections privées et des musées européens. French President Emmanuel Macron commissioned the report after promising during a visit last year to Burkina Faso to temporarily or permanently return African artifacts taken during colonial days. The government has taken a first step in making good this promise, with plans to return 26 royal artifacts taken from West Africa's ancient Dahomey Kingdom in the 19th century to what is now Benin. So those 26 are very important objects. Even though the number seems very small, uh, 26 are the pieces that come directly from the royal palace in Abomey. Marie-Cécile Zazou is president of the Zazou Foundation in Benin and among Africa's most vocal restitution advocates. A decade ago, her private museum hosted an exhibition on Dahomey art, borrowing the pieces from France. More than a quarter of a million people flocked to see them.
if Benin succeeds uh, in showing the heritage, if they make it, I think everything will change. Like this, we have a real example of uh, how African countries are getting their heritage back and how they're showing it to the public. Experts estimate up to 90% of African antiquities are located outside the continent. That includes in France, with an estimated 90,000 pieces, mostly housed at Quai Museum. Benin was the first francophone country to formally ask for its artifacts back. Now the demands are growing, with officials in Senegal, Ivory Coast, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Chad saying they are ready or interested in making restitution claims. New or renovated museums are also sprouting across Africa, countering arguments that the continent cannot properly house its heritage. Other European countries are caught up in the debate. The British Museum promised to return priceless bronzes to Nigeria. And Germany is helping Kenya track stolen artifacts. At the same time, a new Berlin museum has sparked controversy for pieces acquired from former German colonies. And there are still plenty of European critics who argue against permanently returning African artifacts to Africa. Benin's Marie-Cécile Zassou dismisses the skeptics. I think as soon as we'll show people how it works, people will understand why it's so important for Africa to have its heritage back. After independence, Zassou said, African countries were forced to prioritize basics like roads and schools. Now it's time, she says, for Africa to preserve its cultural identity. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Briefly, before we leave you, a summary of Africa news in Zimbabwe. The Commission of Inquiry set up by the government to look into last August post-election violence released its report late Tuesday. The commission said the army and police used unjustified and disproportionate force in which six people died. And that is it for this Wednesday, December 19th edition of Daybreak Africa. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, producer Nicole Beckford, reporters Peter Clotty and Ricky Stryak, as well as sports editor Samson O'Malley, along with our engineer John Ellison, I'm James Button, Washington, wishing you a good day. The 2019 Voice of America calendars are in. This year's calendar features a variety of scenic photos that capture the beautiful byways of the United States including magnificent photos of California's Big Sur Coast Highway, West Virginia's Highland Scenic Highway, and even the Cato All-American Road in Maine. Tune into Border Crossings and call to request a free calendar. Hello, this is Shaka Sali, host of Straight Talk Africa. Nigeria is preparing for general elections in February 2019. President Mamadou Buhari is running on an ambitious anti-corruption agenda. But opposition leader Atiku Abubakar believes the president has neglected the economy. An in-depth discussion on Nigeria's future. Tune in Wednesdays at 18.30 UTC right here on VOA Africa. Today is Wednesday, December 18th. This is VOA's International Edition. I'm Lori London in Washington. Coming up, the sentencing of the president's first national security chief is delayed. Outgoing U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is urging the Palestinians to be open to a peace deal. 
Both sides would benefit greatly from a peace agreement, but the Palestinians would benefit more and the Israelis would risk more. Details on the new U.S. policy on Africa. Also ahead... A beloved Hollywood actress has died. It's all on today's International Edition. A federal judge Tuesday abruptly postponed the sentencing of President Donald Trump's first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, declaring himself disgusted with Flynn's crime of lying to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and raising the unexpected prospect of sending the retired Army Lieutenant General to prison. Lawyers for Flynn, who admittedly who admitted lying to the FBI about his Russian contacts, requested a delay during the stunning hearing in which U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan told the former Trump aide in a blistering rebuke that, quote, arguably you sold your country out. The postponement gives Flynn a chance to continue cooperating with the government in hopes of a foreign lobbying including in a foreign lobbying prosecution brought this week. The possibility of prison had seemed remote for Flynn, who was smiling and upbeat as he entered the courtroom since prosecutors had praised his extensive cooperation and didn't recommend any time behind bars. But the judge's rebuke raised the prospect that Flynn could get a harsher sentence. Joining us now, Jeremy Mayer, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University in Virginia. Well, I think the most interesting part was that the judge did not accept the recommendation of the prosecutors for no jail time, and that is unusual. Uh, And what the judge did was express real outrage over Flynn's conduct and raise the question uh, implicitly of why should he get zero jail time when he acted as a foreign agent of another country without registration, without information, and then lied to FBI agents. Do you think that Flynn's attorneys and some of the statements that they made in pleading for his freedom, do you think that they may have actually hurt him more by insinuating that the FBI did not treat Flynn fairly? It certainly seems that way because the judge opened up his hearing by explicitly asking questions of both Flynn and his attorneys, daring them to say in court what they They had been suggesting outside of his court that Flynn was set up, that the FBI agents didn't really treat him fairly. And both Flynn and his lawyers said, no, no, I don't know where you got that idea. We, of course, were treated fairly, which is not what they've been hinting at for weeks. President Trump, before the hearing, tweeted that he wished Flynn luck. It's interesting because from all that we've heard, Michael Flynn is cooperating in the Russia investigation, which I would think the president would be concerned about every other person that has been cooperating. The president has some Something pretty nasty to say about, but yet he continues to stand by Michael Flynn or at least have very kind words for him. What do you think so that means? Flynn has been treated very strangely by President Trump from the beginning because a normal president finding out that his national security advisor lied to the FBI, uh, worked for at least one foreign power during his campaign and on into his presidency and transition, would have been angry at this person for the incredible damage that would do to a presidency. Instead, one of the first things Trump does is he goes to Comey, then the FBI director, and says, please don't be hard on this guy. He's a good guy. Don't investigate him harshly. 
which is extremely unusual. And then Flynn himself, throughout his testimony, there's a, there's a big question. Why did he lie to the FBI agents? Because it, it would have been much less of a problem for him if he'd just said, yeah, I talked to the Soviet ambassador, the Russian ambassador, but the reason for the lying even today is not clear to me. Let's turn to this set of reports that came out from uh, the Senate this week that really underscored the depth of which Russia's efforts to interfere in U.S. democracy, U.S. elections, and so discourse and derision, that this went very, very deep, according to this new Senate report. What do you think that the message was that Russia was trying to send, or was, were they not sending a message? What, what were they t- trying to achieve? Well, both reports are very clear on this. The Russian message was pro-Trump throughout. They were pro-Trump in a couple of really clever ways, and one of the things that comes through in both of these reports is how politically savvy the Russians were. They must have had some help from Americans to know exactly how to talk to subgroups in America, such as gun rights fanatics and African-American political activists. So first, the message was pro-Trump. Second, the message was anti-Hillary, which were two distinct messages. It wasn't that they were they were all comparing. Some of the messages were directed at left-wing groups, such as Bernie Sanders voters, who were encouraged to either not vote or to vote for Jill Stein or to vote for Trump. And then the other thing is just divisiveness. Make Americans hate each other, make Americans doubt the mainstream media. And another thing that I found interesting about these reports is if you look at the totality of the messaging by the Russians, it dovetails almost exactly with what Trump was talking about during the campaign and after the campaign. So who was following who? We don't know that from these reports, but we have never seen anything like this where a foreign power gives a megaphone to a presidential candidate. It is inconceivable this would ever happen in an earlier period in American history, particularly a hostile foreign power. According to these reports, it's still happening. It hasn't stopped since the election. I am not aware or we have not heard about any major efforts to address this problem, which most national security experts would, I believe, classify as information warfare. Yeah, they have a couple neat terms in this report. One is cyber warriors, cyber soldiers, and computational warfare. This is very, very close to war on the Internet. And what they're doing is very damaging to the United States because democracy has a hard time functioning if no one believes in truth. So these messages were corrosive. They caused us to hate each other more than we did already and also denigrated CNN and the mainstream media. And another way they dovetailed what Trump talked about is that starting in 2017, the Russians began to attack Comey, and the special counsel, uh, Robert Mueller, which is exactly what Trump wants uh, Americans to hear. Are you aware of any efforts by the government to address this problem that's ongoing, apparently? There has been a lot of action, if we are to believe what we read in the media, from our intel community to deal with another aspect of Russian intervention, which is the hacking. But the major thing we've done has been by these social media corporations themselves. Facebook has gone through a huge transformation. Twitter, Facebook, and Google uh, have all cracked down to some extent. But one of the things that comes through in both of these reports is some frustration by the researchers saying, hey, hey, these social media companies are not giving us all the data. There are other Russian accounts that we know are out there, and they give us good reason to think that Facebook and Twitter and Google have been lax even now that there are more Russian accounts out there than even the huge number that they identify in these reports. All 
All right, that is Jeremy Mayer, Associate Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University in Virginia. Here are some of the stories we are following at voanews.com. President Trump appears to be backing down from the threat of a government shutdown. The White House says Trump is willing to look at extraditing a Turkish cleric. An outgoing, the outgoing U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, is urging the Palestinians to accept a peace deal with Israel. And a new study predicts culinary impacts of climate change. Find expanded coverage of these stories and more at voanews.com and on our VOA mobile app. This is International Edition. The Trump administration has delayed unveiling its much-anticipated plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace and in the meantime taken unilateral steps, including moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and dramatically cutting its funding to the U.N. agency that assists Palestinian refugees. Both moves have infuriated the Palestinian leadership and severely strained their relationship with Washington as an impartial peace broker. Outgoing U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley at her final appearance at the monthly Security Council meeting on the issue urged the Palestinians to accept a peace deal. It is time we faced a hard truth. Both sides would benefit greatly from a peace agreement. But the Palestinians would benefit more. And the Israelis would risk more. It is with this backdrop in mind that the Trump administration has crafted its plan for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. The Palestinians have everything to gain by engaging in peace negotiations. President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner and his special envoy on the peace process, Jason Greenblatt, are tasked with putting a plan together to end one of the world's most intractable conflicts. VOA's Victor Beatty asks Russell Stone, Professor Emeritus with the Center for Israel Studies at American University, if he has any information on what is in this plan. It hasn't been announced. There are uh, no details. The big news in the story is that it's uh, the last time Nikki Haley will be uh, uh, discussing it as ambassador to the United Nations. Her appointment ends at the end of December. She said it's much longer. It contains much more thoughtful detail and hinted at the use of uh, new technology. Well, the only thing new in that is new technology, but there's not much news there. We've been uh, discussing the the lack of detail and the uh, the lack of making it public now for almost two years, and we're no farther farther along in the process. The Palestinians remain skeptical. A poll published by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research on Tuesday found that three-quarters of those surveyed believe their leadership should reject President Trump's peace plan. Yes, and the uh, the leadership uh, announced today that they also are very skeptical about it. Uh, we don't know the level of support in Israel from recent polls that I'm aware of, but it's clear that there isn't a great deal of support for it there either. Do you anticipate anything that new that will come in this plan? Have you heard any hints about what's in it? I know as much as you know, uh, nothing has been made public there. 
Uh, it appears to be uh, you know, an, another example of the bluster of the Trump administration where they uh, uh, make promises but uh, don't deliver. You obviously have to have both sides come to the table. Uh, is there anything that would entice Palestinians to come to the negotiating table at this point? What would entice them would be uh, getting more control over territory and more sovereignty over their lives. But uh, whether that's part of the plan or not, uh, we don't know. One of the key things, of course, was last May's decision by the U.S. to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And now we have the Arab League urging Australia and Brazil to shift their stance on Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Well, this is a, there's a kind of an incremental uh, creep of, of countries that are willing to uh, uh, recognize Jerusalem as the, as the capital of Israel. Uh, it, it, there's no argument there. It is the, it is the capital. But to uh, formally move at least some of their diplomatic uh, activities to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Australian announcement was that uh, they plan to do this, but will not do so until there is progress in the peace process. Are you any more hopeful as the new year approaches that there'll be any kind of a a peace understanding between Israel and the Palestinians? I'm always hopeful, but uh, as to to a change, I'm doubtful that there will be any change at this time. That's Russell Stone. He's a professor emeritus, Center for Israel Studies at American University. This is Science in a Minute. The International Astronomy Union's Minor Planet Center recently announced the discovery of 2018 VG18, the most distant object to be observed in our solar system. A team of astronomers say they spotted a dwarf planet they nicknamed Far Out. That is some 100 times the distance between Earth and the Sun, which is almost 18 billion kilometers away from us. The discovery also marked the first time an object more than 100 times the Earth-Sun distance had been spotted. The astronomers say the object's brightness suggests it's about 500 kilometers wide and has a pinkish hue, a color scientists have found to be associated with icy objects. The team says the discovery was made while they were continuing their search for the so far unseen Planet 9. About four years ago, scientists found evidence of a giant planet in the far reaches of the solar system. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Well, the U.S. unveiled a new Africa strategy last week designed to prioritize American interests and challenge efforts by China and Russia to develop economic, political, and security partnerships across the continent. Reporter Joseph Hammond was at the Atlantic Dialogues meeting in Morocco and talks about what came out of it, including remarks by National Security Advisor John Bolton. Both Bolton's uh, comments and those made by Peter Pham, who is, of course, the U.S. Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region and was the first uh, Trump administration official to comment on the strategy uh, after Bolton. I think both those comments coming one the day after the other were part of a clear message from the Trump administration that uh, Africa has not been forgotten, that Africa remains a priority for the Trump administration. Both Pham and Bolton were keen to emphasize and and, and the White House statement were keen to emphasize that, uh, you know, this was unveiled uh, in less than two years after the president took office. 
and the Obama administration's Africa strategy document was not produced uh, until 2012. So Peter Fan said explicitly that this, you know, hopes he puts to rest that the, you know, the Trump administration is not interested uh, in Africa. In many ways, the Trump administration already signaled that uh, in October with the new initiative that will help fund small and medium-sized entrepreneurs in Africa. So that was one of the key messages that administration officials have been key to underline regarding this new strategy. My understanding, though, is that this three-part policy really largely continues much of the United States' existing approach to its military trade and aid initiatives in Africa. Yes, it continues things that have already been ongoing, and there's clear continuity throughout you know, U.S. policies uh, regarding Africa, which might be why they were able to produce their strategy documents so quickly right. uh, compared to uh, their predecessors. Um, there have been, obviously, you know, if you go get into it a little bit, how some of these things, you know, you mentioned security, how those things have played out. Well, one of the differences is obviously between the Trump administration and the Obama administration is, is Somalia, where last year Trump, the record... Uh, for lack of a better term, of number of U.S. drone strikes uh, in Somalia. And this year, that I think it was in the 40s. This year, it's in the, it's in the 50s. That's one of the areas that's changed. But also other things like also the Marrakesh Dialogues, you had representatives there from AFRICOM talking about the fact that the U.S. has really tried to build uh, capacity on the ground for African peacekeepers and African security forces to take uh, a larger role in providing their own security. I know there is an emphatic desire to prevent Beijing and Moscow from making moves in Africa unchallenged. What did we learn about the U.S. strategy there? That is one of the ways that this strategy document, uh, at least the way it was presented by Bolton, differs from the way that U.S. looked at Africa in the past. As Bolton, in his remarks at the Hudson Institute, was very clear that the, in seeing China and, and, and Russia uh, as potential competitors, but I don't think that he could fully close the, the door on potential areas of cooperation with China or Russia and Africa. I think it was more calling out China and Russian behaviors, which are often seen as potentially undermining African governance. One of the things that China, you know, if you look at China's business deals and the, the number of their investments in Africa have been, have been increasing uh, every year, one of the things that's starting to, to change is that China is just now starting to learn the idea of, you know, win-win about that these are deals that it's trying to establish that will allow future deals between China and African countries. And this is something that other players have, have already learned. You know, I was in Morocco. One of the big projects going on there is a new light rail project in, in Casablanca, which is being built by a Turkish contractor. And yes, the Turks are going to make a, a, a profit on this, this project. But the idea is that, you know, this is a company which is interested in doing business potentially in Morocco in the future and Turkish businesses are as well. So not to, to burn bridges. And this is a lesson that, that, that China is just now starting to learn. It'll be interesting that Russia, which is now looking at, you know, mostly commodities, natural resource type projects in Africa, if it will learn that, that same message as quickly we have now. You know, Russia, again, interested in, in mining in Zimbabwe, natural gas and petroleum prospects in, in, in Mozambique. And then also kind of very interesting there, the satellite deal that it was put together with Angola. So the Trump administration has been watching this and, and is concerned on some of these maneuvers by these two countries. I think one of the things that the Bolton comments really focused on when he was talking about African security was the, the G5 Saho uh, joint force, and he was really highlighting this as a success. Talking to people, you know, at the Atlantic uh, Dialogues and other leaders, there are some concerns about the, the G5, you know, Saho. One is that this has a security grouping of these countries is going to prevent the development of an African Union force, and there'll be an emphasis on regional security apparatus rather than a pan-African approach. There's also concern that, you know, G5 is doing development work 
and this would seem to undermine uh, one of the classic goals of counterinsurgency when you're dealing with insurgent groups is that you want to restore faith in, in local governance. So that is definitely an area that, that's open for potential debates going forward. All right, reporter Joseph Hammond, thanks for being with us. You're listening to International Edition on VOA. Hello, friends. This is Sunday Shomari Hostel. Let's talk. Join me Monday for another exciting edition of your show. Our topic will be superstition. This will be Monday at 17.30 UTC right here on VOA Africa. We're talking about the news and issues you're talking about. Sharing stories of development and growth across Africa, around the world, and in our lives. Topics that inform, empower, and change the rules. It's time for Our Voices with me, Heidi Adams-Fitzpatrick. And Hadiza Kiari. And Ayan Bior. And Orion Itangishaka. Join us on Facebook at VOA Our Voices. It's time for Our Voices. VOA's International Edition continues. New momentum in France to return artifacts dubiously acquired during the colonial era era have sparked growing restitution claims in Africa, with the West African country of Benin expected to be the first beneficiary. For VOA, Lisa Bryant has more from Paris. In the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, the Quai Branly Museum hosts France's biggest collection of indigenous art from Africa, Oceania, Asia, and the Americas. An estimated 70,000 of its roughly 300,000 artifacts come from Africa. But for how long will Quai Branly be able to keep them? That's a question facing French museums housing African artifacts, some taken by French soldiers and civilians during colonial days. A report released last month argues they should be permanently returned to their places of origin. On est dans un temps qui est beaucoup plus opportun pour que l'on avance sur cette question-là parce que cette question relève aussi d'un impensé. Senegalese economist Félouin Sarr co-authored the report with a French historian. In a recent interview on French radio, Sarr argues that after decades of discussion and dispute, the time for returning African art is ripe. African youth has a right to reconnect with its patrimony, he says, just like young people everywhere else in the world. Le patrimoine africain ne peut pas être uniquement dans des collections privées et des musées européens. French President Emmanuel Macron commissioned the report after promising during a visit last year to Burkina Faso to temporarily or permanently return African artifacts taken during colonial days. The government has taken a first step in making good this promise, with plans to return 26 royal artifacts taken from West Africa's ancient Dahomey Kingdom in the 19th century to what is now Benin. So those 26 are very important objects. Even though the number seems very small, uh, the 26 are the pieces that come directly from the royal palace in Abomey. Marie-Cécile Zazou is president of the Zazou Foundation in Benin and among Africa's most vocal restitution advocates. A decade ago, her private museum hosted an exhibition on Dahomey art, borrowing the pieces from France. More than a quarter of a million people flocked to see them. If Benin succeeds, 
uh, in showing the heritage, if they make it, I think everything will change. Like this, we have a real example of uh, how African countries are getting their heritage back and how they're showing it to the public. Experts estimate up to 90% of African antiquities are located outside the continent. That includes in France with an estimated 90,000 pieces, mostly housed at Quai Museum. Benin was the first francophone country to formally ask for its artifacts back. Now the demands are growing, with officials in Senegal, Ivory Coast, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Chad saying they are ready or interested in making restitution claims. New or renovated museums are also sprouting across Africa, countering arguments that the continent cannot properly house its heritage. Other European countries are caught up in the debate. The British Museum promised to return priceless bronzes to Nigeria, and Germany is helping Kenya track stolen artifacts. At the same time, a new Berlin museum has sparked controversy for pieces acquired from former German colonies. And there are still plenty of European critics who argue against permanently returning African artifacts to Africa. Benin's Marie-Cécile Zassou dismisses the skeptics. I think as soon as we'll show people how it works, people will understand why it's so important for Africa to have its heritage back. After independence, Zassou said, African countries were forced to prioritize basics like roads and schools. Now it's time, she says, for Africa to preserve its cultural identity. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Penny Marshall, who starred in the television sitcom Laverne and Shirley before becoming one of the top grossing female directors in Hollywood, has died. The Bronx-born Marshall starred as Laverne DeFazio alongside Cindy Williams as a pair of blue-collar roommates toiling on the assembly line of a Milwaukee brewery. Why should our section be the one be the one to be laid off, huh? Why are we the ones who are out of work? Why are we the ones packing our things, huh? I told you why. Because the Braves are on a losing streak? Let me explain it to you again, okay? See, if the Braves don't play so good, then people don't go to the games. People don't go to the games, then shots can't sell them beer. Do you got that? So why don't they just lay off the Braves? <laughs> A spinoff of Happy Days, the series was the rare network hit about working class characters. And as a filmmaker, she became the first woman to direct a film that grossed more than $100 million with Big, the 1988 comedy starring Tom Hanks. She also directed A League of Their Own, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and Awakenings. A family spokeswoman says Marshall died in her Los Angeles home on Monday due to complications from diabetes. Joining us to talk more about her legacy is Vegas film critic Jeffrey K. Howard. I grew up as a little boy watching Happy Days where Laverne and Shirley had a cameo in one episode and they got a spinoff series. I never missed it. I watched it every week. And, you know, because they did that slapstick comedy that I love, like from I Love Lucy and, and all of those. And she's just, she was just so funny. And she was so different than, uh, than Shirley's character. You know, it was just, they were just right. comic gold. Mm -hmm. 
And not only that, she was a pioneer in uh, Hollywood for directing, for breaking that glass ceiling for women. I mean, she directed big. She directed for um, a, a League of Their Own, huge hits with big stars and Tom Hanks. She was not only just a great comedian, but she was a talented director as well. So she opened a lot of doors for female directors and for females in Hollywood, which is not to be forgotten because you know, she made these big blockbusters. But other than that, also her, her brother, Gary Marshall, we lost him last year too. And uh, so they, they were just such New York characters with their voices and their attitudes. You know, we just, you know, last Halloween, that movie Hocus Pocus, everybody goes crazy over that film. Everyone loves that family Disney film. And Gary Marshall and Penny Marshall have a cameo when the three witches show up trick-or-treating. You know, it's just hysterical. So I was watch I was watching on YouTube today the best of Laverne and Shirley and uh it's really a really a sad day. But also she's got such great work to leave behind for an inspiration for the next generation. There's been a lot of a lot of reaction to this loss in Hollywood. Absolutely and uh it's it's sad right before the holidays, you know, losing Gary Marshall last year and now Penny Marshall. But you know, I'm just glad that we we have her work to fall back on and to watch. And like I said, I've been laughing all morning, and it's sad, but also a joyous time, too. Well, that's Jeffrey K. Howard, the Vegas film critic. The Marshall family said in a statement, quote, our family is heartbroken. Penny Marshall was 75. For in-depth news and analysis on events in South Sudan, tune in to South Sudan in Focus, Monday through Friday from 1630 to 1700 UTC. We are also on the web at www.voanews.com forward slash South Sudan or download our podcast on iTunes. That's South Sudan in Focus on VOA Africa. You've been listening to International Edition. That does it for today's show, but you can find us anytime at voanews.com. We thank you for joining us, and thanks to our director, Tracy Carter, and our engineer, John Ellison. I'm Lori London in Washington. Have a great day. This is VOA News. I'm Victor Beatty. Diplomats from Russia, Iran, and Turkey have been unable to agree on the makeup of a U.N.-sponsored Syrian constitutional committee, but they did call for it to convene next year, aimed at a peace process to end Syria's nearly eight-year war. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and his Iranian and Turkish counterparts issued a joint statement after meeting outgoing U.N.-Syrian envoy Stefan Mistura. I'm going to report to the Security Council and the Secretary General, and there is still a extra mile to be taken, but we do certainly appreciate the intensive work that has been done, and we have taken note of the efforts which have been done so far. There was no mention made of the composition of the committee suggesting continuing disagreement over the proposed list of candidates submitted by Damascus and the opposition. Washington Institute for Near East Policy Analyst Andrew Tabler called it a setback and blamed Moscow. I think the Russian party has been intransigent and unwilling to bring the regime towards the opposition and the neutral party's stance on the 
negotiations. Dima Stura, in the post of UN envoy for the past four years, has tried to seal a deal on the identity of 150 participants in the committee. Since January, he steps down December 31st. An inquiry into the Army's actions against post-election protests earlier this year in Zimbabwe condemned the use of live fire that left six dead. President Emerson Munangagwa read portions out to the reporters. The use of live ammunition directed at the people, especially when they were fleeing, was clearly unjustified and disproportionate. The protests erupted following a delay in the release of results of the July 30 election, giving Mr. Munangagwa a win over opposition candidate Nelson Chamisa. This is VOA News. The British government says it will implement plans for a no-deal withdrawal from the European Union that includes keeping 3,500 armed force personnel on standby. Gavin Williamson is the UK Defence Secretary. We've at yet, as yet, not had any formal requests uh, from any government department, but what we are doing is putting contingency plans in place, and what we will do is have 3,500 service personnel held at readiness, including regulars and reserves, in order to support any government department on any contingencies they may need. With just over 100 days until Brexit kicks in March 29th, Prime Minister Theresa May has yet to win support of Parliament for her deal on future ties with the EU. Voters in Madagascar are casting ballots Wednesday for president and choosing between two former presidents who emerged from the first round of elections, Andre Rajolina and Mark Ravalomanan. Meanwhile, Togolese voters are casting ballots in legislative elections on Thursday that a coalition of opposition parties is boycotting after denouncing irregularities and demanding reforms. Recurring protests have demanded that President Ford Nassimbe resign. Russian President Vladimir Putin said there is nothing to stop the U.S. and Russia from holding talks with other nations on getting them to join an intermediate forces nuclear treaty that Washington says it will withdraw from. Mr. Putin said there are problems with it.